Well, we're in part six of our series on the Holy Spirit this morning, um, and uh, part seven is, as we've already announced, the BBC service uh, next Sunday uh, between 10.30 and 11.30. Uh, there are a few more spaces left. Please do uh, book in uh, using that QR code, and that link would be just so great to have those remaining spaces filled. Um, just a few things that we've managed to finish. We're really pleased to have finished the carpet. For those of you who were here last weekend, we had bits of stage revealed and stuff, but that's now all done and we're with the rails, so it's just a nice little housekeeping job uh, that we're pleased to get ready for. Um, so the last in the series is next Sunday, but we're in part six today um, of the series on the Holy Spirit. Um, the first weekend after Easter, we started with the person of the Holy Spirit, didn't we? We looked at his identity, who he is, one of the people of God. There's God the Father, there's Jesus the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. And we looked at some word pictures that the Bible gives us about the Holy Spirit, dove, fire, wind, oil, uh, a gift, those kinds of things we looked at that, didn't we? So we explored his identity. Uh, and then in week two, we looked at the idea that you can be born, at, born again spiritually and also baptized in the spirit. And I gave you the picture of that little pilot light inside the boiler being like the time that you say yes to Jesus. But then when you get filled with the spirit, it's like when the burners come on and there's heat and energy for ministry and boldness and courage and to kind of extend the kingdom of God in partnership with the spirit. Uh, then we looked um, at the idea that we are sealed. The day that we decide to follow Jesus, uh, we are sealed on the inside by the Spirit up until the point that we are taken home to be with God in heaven. And uh, we gave you the illustration of the time that Chloe and I bought a table from a charity shop and there was a sticker on the table. We couldn't take it away at the time, but we came back on Christmas Eve to get our table and the sticker showed us that it belonged to us. And that's just what happens with you and the Spirit. Uh, God puts his Spirit on the inside of you as a seal. And at the end of time, he looks for that seal and he goes, ah, one of my followers, right, into heaven you come. It's a beautiful concept. Uh, and we unpack that a little bit. Uh, then we had a, a message all about help. And the just, I mean, there's so many ways in which the Spirit can help you. Uh, the list just goes on forever. So what I did was I decided to focus in on just one main way in which he helps, which is that he is company. He is company alongside you all the time. He, uh, we're going to actually unpack what it means to walk in step with the Spirit and in his company in just a minute. Um, but he is company alongside you. He is there for the journey. He is there whispering in your ear uh, and encouraging you uh, all the time. Uh, then we had the legend that is Boyd Ratnaraja, who is the general superintendent of the Elam Church in New Zealand. He came and did a fantastic message all about gifts, didn't he? Uh, who is here for that? Just quickly raise your hand if you heard that. That was such a great message, wasn't it? Really good. And I particularly enjoyed his illustration of when the dinner plate is about to fall off the table and then your reactions to that giving you a clue as to the kind of spiritual gifts uh, that you might have. If you missed that message, I just encourage you to uh, jump into YouTube from, from last Sunday and have a look at that. Today, we are looking at the idea of fruit, growing spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, back in year nine in school, I did a biology project. We, we all did a biology project in our class, which was all about the natural world. Now, I wasn't very well the day that they set the project, and so I kind of missed some of the parameters of it, but I got the gist of it from my classmates, and it was all about creating some stuff to describe the natural world. And part, I did three or four chapters in this project. It was quite a long project, and I did a section all about fruit. Uh, and I did how fruit um, is the result of a flower on a particular plant, and then that flower gets germinated by insects or, or maybe animals that come along, and then a fruit begins to grow, doesn't it? 
And if you've seen apple blossom uh, in the spring, you then know that over time that's going to turn into a little fruit. And then by the autumn, you know, September, October time, you're going to get bigger apples, which are the result of that flower and that germination process, uh, aren't they? And then fruit provides nutrition and blessing. Uh, you can you know, pick an apple from a tree and you can bite it and it gives you nutrition, it's enjoyable to eat, um, and it blesses you. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, then we get the idea that the fruit itself contains a seed for the next possibility of another plant or another tree or something else that can continue that cycle of producing fruit and fruitfulness. Uh, and so I did this project. I was a little disappointed because I missed the, the introduction and the conclusion because I'd been away. And I, I, you know, like I, I, an outcome for me was to learn to make sure that I went and talked to the teacher, not just consult with my classmates. Um, so I got a much lower mark than I was hoping to. But the bits that I did do, I did well in. And I still remember some of the drawings I did for that project of apples and flowers and things like that. The same pattern is spiritually true for us. The Spirit grows qualities in us, they become blessings to us and to other people around us, and then that leads to spiritual seeds being sown in other people. Have you ever had that scenario where you've met somebody and you just thought, oh, you are just such a kind person? Where does that kindness come from? Or you met somebody and they're just so helpful or they've got just a real gentleness about them. It's when we see the fruit of the Spirit in evidence in someone's life, it's kind of infectious, isn't it? It kind of inspires us to want to be the same. Um, I, I find it when, when someone's very, very gentle, I find myself being gentle, you know, and it encourages that. And so we see that in our lives, um, that the, the, when spiritual fruit grow, they then inspire spiritual fruit in others. Uh, and that's a little bit like a mirror of what happens with natural uh, fruit as well. Now, I want to explain uh, that as part of what I'm teaching today, that there's a sort of a principle at work. And the, the principle is this. Things are always just going to grow. But what grows is subject to intentionality. Now, right at the moment, if I look down my, my back garden, um, we've got a hugely fruitful garden. Can I just say, it's like absolutely rammed with fruitfulness. It's just it's coming from the nettle and the bramble. Um, it's not really coming from the, you know, the flowers we've planted or the fruit trees that we've cultivated. It's a little bit messy. And in fact, this afternoon, now that the sun's out, I'm going to get at, down there with the mower and kind of sort that out. What I'm saying, though, is if you just let things be, you will have a fruitfulness that just appears anyway. Uh, But is it the kind of fruitfulness that you want? Is it the things that you'd like to see appear in your life? Um, Things are so, so much better when they're tended and they're the result of our intentionality. Now, what we see in the passage that Jason read for us this morning is a bit of a battle going on, a stark contrast between... The outcome of just letting things happen in the natural, in the, in the human, in, and in the flesh, on the one hand, and then outcomes from if we stay in step with the Spirit, if we're constantly trying to stay close to God, listen to Jesus, and to be aware of what the Spirit's doing in our lives, and then what happens is the outcomes from that are very, very different. And we see this really stark contrast between some quite strong negative things that that maybe, maybe characterized some of our lives before we became a Christian, if we're really honest, versus the idea that the Spirit can grow these really quite beautiful things that are a blessing to us and a blessing to everybody around us. 
Now, I just want to talk you through a little bit of a diagram today, um, and uh, I'm going to ask the mediator team to put that diagram up. Um, this is a diagram that is kind of like a journey through Galatians chapter 5. So let me take you through what I think we're trying to look at here. Paul is developing some key ideas in Galatians 5 about choices of direction that we might go in. So the blue circle there, kind of this circle just here, what is the direction we want to go in is a question we're all faced with. Now, if we, if we just allow the flesh to have its way, what we're shown is that actually that then results in that long list of rather grotty things that Paul has identified. Uh, and we read that list and we wince and we go, oh gosh, that's really not kind of the outcomes that I want for my life. But then we have the idea that contrasted to that are the works of the Spirit. And so if we're filled with the Spirit, if we're listening to the Spirit, if we're staying close to God, then there's going to be various different fruits that will appear over time because of the presence of God's Spirit inside us. Uh, and we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we get the sense from the way that Paul's written the list that is actually there could be the other lovely things as well. Um, you know, it's not completely comprehensive. It's, it's all the good things that come out of being in a relationship with Jesus. Now, what Paul does, and this is quite interesting, he tries to, well, he does this very successfully. He, he takes us through, well, it's not just a battle between the flesh and the spirit, where does the law sit in this? Where does the instruction from God's Bible about what's right and wrong fit in this framework? And so what we have is we have the framework of God's law, which is kind of sort of in the middle there in those, in those uh, gray uh, bubbles. Uh, now, God's law is not wrong. Please don't hear that I'm trying to attack God's law. I'm not at all. And what I mean by God's law is things like the Ten Commandments, the specific instructions we might find about things we should do and things we shouldn't do. Um, but there's a battle going on, and it needs to be understood with the awareness of what the law says, um, but the law is only helpful up to a point. The law doesn't provide all the things we need to live a holy life. It gives definition for it, but it doesn't give us energy or impetus uh, to get towards it. Let me give you an illustration. The law would provide the fence at the edge of the cliff. So if you imagine this, the edge of the stage here is like a cliff, the law would be the fence that said... If you step beyond this, you will fall off the cliff and uh, you will be broken by the result. That's what the law does. What the Holy Spirit, what Paul's trying to do is to say, if you walk by the Spirit, what will happen is you will then walk on the path. And I don't know if any of you have ever walked near a cliff but, and, and you've, you've seen this. But the path that goes along a coast is often kind of this distance away from the edge, isn't it? And you have a path that leads you safely far away from the cliff edge where the fence might be. And so the boundaries need to be set by God because he's, he wants to give clarity and he wants to tell us exactly what is right and wrong. But what the Spirit does is he leads us on a path away from the edge so that we're not constantly flirting with danger and about to fall off the edge. Does that make sense? I hope that, that that's a good picture for you. Um, so let me, let me just talk you through uh, th this connection with the law going into the Spirit. What, what Paul does in Galatians is he tries to uh, address the fact that the Galatian church started out when they first got saved at this end of the equation. 
They understood that faith was received by believing in Jesus and that the Spirit would help them. And in their early journey of life, they were filled with the Spirit. They got the Spirit. There was fruit appearing. And then what happened with the Galatians is they got infiltrated by some traditional Jews who said, oh, no, no, holiness is not to do with the Spirit. Holiness is to do with things like circumcision and rituals and and special processes that you need to go through, external rites, if you like. And so what happened was the Galatian church kind of went on a journey. They drifted back from the purple zone into this gray zone here, thinking that that would make them holy. And Paul then says, well, no, that doesn't make you holy. What you need to do is you need to get back in with the Spirit again because the Spirit produces a level of holiness that the law simply isn't able to achieve. So that's kind of one of the central threads of the whole letter of Galatians, actually, um, and very specifically in Galatians uh, chapter 5. Let me just give you a compare and contrast between the law and the spirit, which sits on that that right-hand blue boundary line there that will help you understand why it's helpful to to walk in step with the spirit rather than constantly looking at the cliff edge. Uh, Let me talk you through that. So the law has limited value. Uh, it's, got, it's, got, it's about limits, actually. It's all about defining boundaries and, and so on, but it has limited value in that, whereas the Spirit has unlimited value. If you get into the territory of the Spirit, there is unlimited possibility for goodness and for all of these characteristics. The law gives us what's called an inanimate or not living legal framework, whereas the Spirit is relational, animating, which means bringing life, and energizing. They're very different kinds of concepts or very different kinds of dynamics, aren't they? Um, The law is universal to everyone, but the spirit is tailored and personal and internalized. Now, let me give you an instance of why that's helpful. The spirit, if you've you've got the spirit on on the inside of you, the spirit knows the kinds of things to say to you as a person individually. The spirit will say, ooh, I think you need to make sure you're not kind of going down the drinking path. You know that that's not good for you. And if you listen to your conscience and you've had that journey with the spirit, you'll stay away from that. But the spirit won't necessarily say that to this person over here who has a different difficulty. The spirit might be saying to this person over here, now you know when you get into that gossip, gosh, you need to, you know, that's not going to help you. So the message coming from the Spirit, because it's tailored, because it's personalized, because it's internalized, it's mapped to who you are in a way that the law, just being a blanket kind of thing, absolutely can't do. And so that's why there's value in staying in step with the Spirit. In essence, what Paul wants to do with Galatians, and particularly with Galatians 5, is he wants us to all get that the Holy Spirit can make us much, much more holy than the law can. Now, that doesn't invalidate the law. It just means that if we're, when we're walking uh, in, the, in the Spirit, we're far away from needing to worry about the law. Now, you know, we've got the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, don't cover, those kinds of things. That's like standing at the edge and looking at the fence. Now, doing that has got some value because you can look down and you can see, oh my goodness, that's a long way down. I don't want to fall over that. But actually, if you're walking in the Spirit on your path, which is far away from that, You don't even need to look at that because the Spirit is keeping you away himself. Does that make sense? Um, Paul gives us the biggest key to growing fruit in the Spirit, and he says it twice uh, in the passage that we looked at today. He says this, first in Galatians 5.16, he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
And that, so that means if we can stay in step with the Spirit continuously and regularly, we'll, we'll almost be like prevented from falling into those, those difficulties that we see up there uh, that Jason read out for us. The other little snippet from uh, Galatians 5 comes from Galatians 5.25, which says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That phrase there, walk by the Spirit, is a, a, a special Greek verb uh, form, which is that it's continuously happening in the now. It continues to happen in the now. It's, some, it's, um, it's it walk, walk continually and all the time in the present with the Spirit in mind and with the Spirit next to you. It's called the continuous present, uh, and it's, it adds power to the nature of it because it's something we have to remember all the time it's with us. Um, have you ever tried walking in step with somebody? Have you ever tried to do that? Uh, where you've maybe walked along the pavement together and you've kind of either consciously or perhaps subconsciously uh, kind of started moving your feet in, and being in step with me. Have you ever done that? Come on, hands up if you've done that. Yeah, we've all done that, haven't we, sometimes for a bit of fun. Um, well, when I was back in, the, uh, in school, another school story, I was in the cadets, and the cadets was kind of like a sort of semi-military thing in school, and it was uh, in the upper, end, upper ages of school, and I was in a, in a platoon of uh, kids of my own age in my year group, and we were led by a platoon sergeant who was in the year above. And our platoon sergeant had the job of uh, making us understand how to do drill. And drill is when soldiers walk like this. You know, they're kind of marching really, really smartly. And all, you know, you see this at parades and special occasions and the coronation and the funeral. And when the military are doing stuff, they, they do drill, don't they? They walk really, really precisely and they're all fully in step. Now, when I was in the first in the platoon as just an ordinary rank and file member of that platoon, we found our drill sergeant hilarious because he took the job really, really seriously. It was like, left, right, left, right. You know, he was just like trying to be like an army sergeant. And it was just too funny. Um, and we would get into trouble with that. But then when I made it to his level in the next year, because I became a platoon sergeant, I suddenly discovered the temptation to be like that was so strong. And I wanted to be like that guy that shouted it out. So I sort of understood him after that. And then we had sort of drill competitions where real proper army corporals came in. And boy, did our drill have to be spot on. And, you know, different, there were different prizes award, awarded for precision marching. Um, but what you have to imagine from that illustration is I want you to imagine that you are a young spiritual cadet and your spiritual, your, your platoon sergeant, sorry, is the Holy Spirit, okay? And he will show you how to walk each of your steps in synchronization and in time with him. If you take your eyes off of him or you stop listening to him or you decide to exit your platoon company, then guess what? your ability to walk in step with him gets drastically reduced, doesn't it? You imagine that, can't you? If you decide not to be there or you decide not to listen to the instructions, you decide not to follow your platoon, suddenly you're out of step, aren't you? And it's difficult. I and mean, we, we did have those guys that were kind of, they would march like this. You know, they kind of lost the, lost the rhythm. <laughs> uh, that was always entertaining as well, but that's just uh, not being very, not very coordinated, I think. Um, hold that illustration in your mind. Uh, because I think it's a very useful one for you to just understand what Paul means by walking in step with the Spirit. Um, I just want to tell you a, a brief story um, from the beginning of The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. Hands up here if you, you know that story, if you've read it, you've seen it on the films and stuff. Um, 
At the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, a, a little girl called Lucy finds Narnia, goes through the back of the wardrobe, discovers this amazing land. She comes back and tells her brothers, her, her brothers and sister about it. Um, and then her older brother, Edmund, he stumbles into Narnia as well. He didn't believe her at first. He's very unkind to her. But then he finds Narnia himself. And he goes in there, and he meets the white witch who, who arrives on a sleigh. And she's bad news. I mean, she's just an evil lady. Um, and uh, he ask, she asks him, would you like something? And he says, oh, yes, please. Um, you know, can I have something to eat and drink? And she provides some Turkish delight and a goblet of hot chocolate. And he has these two things, and he's incredibly sort of taken up with these. He's, he just thinks they're the most delicious things ever. Uh, and then he kind of comes back out of Narnia, and he keeps this idea of Narnia to himself as a secret, even though he's experienced it himself. Uh, and then he goes back in to try and find um, uh, this, whole, th- this whole thing because he wants the hot chocolate and the Turkish delight again. Uh, so he goes back in, he finds the witch. The witch comes up and he asks her for them again, but she's much, much more harsh this time. Uh, and she says, no, uh, uh, but come with me to my castle. And she, he, he, he gets taken off to her castle. And then, in fact, he's imprisoned there. Um, uh, but his, his desire is for this fleshly fulfillment from the hot chocolate and the Turkish delight. Uh, and I'm sure lots of us in the room can identify with having to resist that kind of stuff at Christmas. And, but actually, it's a very, very good illustration of what it's like to be drawn towards that fleshly expression of that desire to do something that is of, of, our, of, of our body, of our flesh. Um, uh, but then, of course, the, st- the story unfolds, and actually uh, he gets caught out in some lying, and his brothers and sisters are pretty cross with him. And then Aslan, who represents Jesus in the story, has to do some work to redeem Edmund so that Edmund is then brought back into a kind of place of understanding that he needs effectively to walk in the Spirit. It doesn't say that in the, in the story, but you get the idea that he needs to, to walk in step with the person of Jesus. Uh, that's the picture that C.S. Lewis, the author, is trying to give us. We can't live a life where we give in to our flesh. We need to live a life that is characterized by staying in step with the Spirit. Now, there's a clue in how we stay in step with the Spirit, which is given to us in Galatians 5, verse 24. It says this, uh, and I, I would say this is the most powerful way to free up space in order for the, for the Spirit to have more room to operate. Uh, Paul says this, Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who have belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so what Paul is saying is the most powerful way for you to free up space in order to walk in step with the Spirit better is to do something called crucify the flesh. Now that is a very strong term, isn't it? Crucify is a very strong word. And we know that it's a strong word because of what Jesus went through in his crucifixion on the cross. And Paul is intentionally using the strength of that language to wake us up to the fact that there is something that needs to be laid down in us in order that there is more space for the Spirit. And because when there's more space for the Spirit, we're going to hear him calling out the marching orders in our life. We're going to hear him telling us the rhythm that we need to walk in. We're going to hear him when he prompts us in our conscience. But that will all go into kind of radar silence if we've got a lot of flesh stuff going on or a lot of sin happening. Uh, and so Paul, Paul's call to us is crucify the flesh. That's a hard thing to hear, a tough message to receive. 
Uh, just to take you back into the Old Testament, the way that they did the uh, sacrificial um, uh, atonement between people and God was to offer the flesh of an animal would be burned up on the altar. You would bring your, your calf or your lamb or your, or your, your, you know, your, your animal that was going to be slain at the altar and the, the fat portions would be burned up in the fire of the altar. And the Lord would then be pleased with that because the fat had been dealt with which is a representation of the flesh being uh, sacrificed in order to minimize the gap between God and the person. And if we forward wind to the New Testament, we then have the same thing with Jesus. Jesus lays down his flesh. He, he lays down his flesh to such a great degree that there is no, there's no flesh left. He allows his whole body to be killed in order that there's no gap between his spirit and the Father. And actually, he does that for all of us. Yeah, so when we receive Jesus, that gap is taken away from us by what Jesus does on the cross. Praise Jesus. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So our flesh is what gets burned up in the Old Testament system of uh, sacrifice, and Jesus' body is what gets broken. His flesh is what gets broken on the cross. And so when Paul says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, he is talking about you and I making intentional, sacrificial decisions to deal with certain flesh aspects of our lives, certain patterns that take us into the wrong direction. And if we deal with those we suddenly find we have more space to hear from the Spirit. It's like a kind of a tug of war between the Holy Spirit and the flesh. And we have to do something incredibly strong to make sure that that tug of war is won. I think there are three aspects to crucifying the flesh. This is, this is not an easy message to hear today. Some of the other messages have been incredibly kind of helpful and kind. And we're like, wow, Holy Spirit, you do all these amazing things. This message today is a bit more hard line. This requires something from us. The first aspect of crucifying the flesh um, is that it's going to be brutal. It's going to be brutal. You're going to have to take drastic personal action against some flesh patterns. You're going to have to identify some things that take you down the wrong path and say, absolutely not, I am not doing that now. With the help of the Lord's strength. And it's got a brutality to it, hasn't it? It's tough. It's not easy. Uh, the second part of it is that it's going to have a public aspect to it. Because crucifixion is public. Now, hear me right on this. I'm not saying that I think you should air all of your struggles on social media. Or that you should come up on a platform like this and say, hey, the thing I'm struggling with is this. And, and, and that's, that's, that's not wise. What I'm saying, though, is you need to find a trusted person that can get alongside you. You can say, listen, I am struggling with this. Would you please pray for me? And then maybe that person can disclose to you now, and they can, you can pray for them. And, and those kinds of accountability relationships take time to build. I think it's about two to three years before you get into the place of that, lo that level of honesty with a brother or a sister in Christ where you can tell them, yeah, this is really what I struggle with. Not just the light stuff, but the really difficult stuff. But when you do that, when you confess the sins, when you talk about what you really struggle with, suddenly the size that they have in your head, they sh it shrinks right down to a much more manageable proportion. That accountability is so, so key. Now, that's what I mean by, by public. So the first aspect of crucifying our flesh is that it's brutal. We have to take brutal action. The second aspect being public, being that there's somebody else that knows about our fight. And here's, here's the kicker. Here's the really tough thing. If we don't find someone who knows about our really tough thing, then I think the world will come along 
and they will find out about it. And they're not as loving, are they? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not being unkind to people in general. I'm just saying it's a bit more random and haphazard. Find that person who loves you, that you love in return, and be dead honest with them about your flesh struggles. Ask for prayer, ask for help. Because the, if you don't do that with the people who, who, you, who you, know, you love and that they love you, what will happen is that that feedback will come from the folk that don't love you so much. Because it's going to come out. And you need to deal with it. So that's number two. It's public. Number three uh, is it's going to be painful. Crucifixion was horrendously painful. When you make the decision to tackle something in your flesh, it hurts you. It costs you. You, you have to grit your teeth to get through it. You're like, why do I have to do this? But you're doing it because you're being asked by Jesus to follow him. And he allowed his flesh to be crucified on a cross. This is what Paul means when it says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've taken that brutal journey. They've decided to make it public with a trusted friend. They've said, yes, this is going to be painful. But the prize in view is so big, it's really worth it. The prize in view is more space to hear from the Holy Spirit. And that means that if I'm able to hear from the, from the Spirit a whole lot more, then that means I can walk in step with the, with, the, with the Spirit a whole lot more. And that means that I'm on the path that is on the way, a way away from the edge where I might otherwise fall off. If we don't crucify our flesh, what happens is we get to the fence and then <laughs> suddenly before we know it, oh, oh, man, I'm off and I've fallen off and oh, now I'm down here. And wow, I have to kind of climb back up and do all of that confessing and get back on. And there's a big regret with that, isn't there? How many of us have been in that place? Well, I think we all have, haven't we? Don't do that. Do the hard work of crucifying the flesh and staying on the path here with the Spirit. It is so much better a way to live. I'm going to ask our worship team just to come back up. Thank you, worship team. I really appreciate that. Let's all stand, BCC. Let's all stand together. I've got a couple of points for us to respond to our message to, today with. Two, just two points to respond. The first is, um, this is something that I kind of sensed last night, and I didn't feel it was right to bring it in the first service. I don't know why, but I just thought it was appropriate for second service, and I was reminded of it in, uh, this morning, and I wrote it down in my notes. I think there are a few people here who've come to church in order to make a new start. Now, we're not going to single you out at all. But you've specifically come with an intention of, do you know what? I want to baseline back in with Jesus today. I know that I haven't really done the best things by him in thought and word and deed. And today is the day where I'm going to sort that out. I'm going to come to church and I'm making a new start. And if you're, if you're that person or those people, then praise God for you and your willingness to come to church and get right with him. That's just a great thing and I applaud you for it. The second thing I want to ask is, and this is a challenge I lay to myself as well as to everybody else, is what am I determining to lay down of my flesh today? What is it that maybe from my history I can see some patterns that maybe still carry forward slightly? Or that there's something that's getting between me and Jesus or me and the Spirit and I don't hear him like I want to, but there's this big thing that I've been wrestling with. Is there something that we need to lay down intentionally and ask Jesus to help us fix in order that we can then hear from the Spirit more often and to walk in step with the Spirit. Because the goal, remember, is spiritual fruit. 
You, you remember the goal that this message is called fruit and it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And yet you're struggling in maybe a couple of those areas because of the flesh pattern that's going on. So what we're going to do is during our worship time is I'm just going to ask you to be brave. No one's going to judge you for this and you don't need to give the details of this to anyone. But I'm going to ask you to be brave and to come to the front and to tell Jesus your struggle and to say, Jesus, I, I'm tired of this. I keep bringing, coming around to this. I'd love for you to help me fix this. Can I lay this down today? Can this be a new start for me? Would you give me strength in my spirit to win at this one? Would you free me in this area? So if that's you, I'm just going to ask you to just, just while we worship, part of the culture of our church is you can come to the front and you can spend some time with Jesus, just you and him. Let's all, uh, let's all, let's all sing, let's praise, and uh, we'll do that. Thank you. Thank you.